Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 19th, 2018, and this is episode 2254 of the Survival Podcast. It is Thursday, that means it's time for a listener call show. I've got a great group of calls lined up today, I think seven of them. We have a call that's a follow-up to my rant on teachers. It's a positive call from the standpoint of being positive about me. Uh, and I want to clarify a few things in regard to my rant, because I think there's people that, you know, well, we'll just save it till I get there. How about that? Maybe I'll even break it out as a YouTube video and uh, append it so that it can go with the other rant that I, the rant from last week also broke out as a YouTube video. Uh, and the ass hurt is, is flaring red on YouTube because I dare said something about a protected class of people. The public school teachers. Um, next up, can permaculture make you a better salesperson or business person? Interesting angle that that guy's coming from. Uh, how to protect your business assets from lawsuits and things like that. You know what I'm going to say. Tax attorney and CPA, right? So when you have a tax attorney, uh, you uh, generally have a, an attorney, uh, and you may consult with him on this, or you may consult with him on who's a good uh, asset protection attorney that you know. So that's kind of where we'll go with that one. Um, dealing with parasitic diseases in quail or other poultry. Best practices with road flares, nighttime breakdowns and things like that. What is the best method of gardening? The You know what I'm going to say, right? It depends. Uh, but, but that's really not how the guy's asking it from a sample. He's like, well, we'll get to that one too when we get to it. How about that? Uh, we have a question on picking a homestead tractor. And we have security for large acreage homestead properties. We will have all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let me remind you real quick, you can help support this show by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. It's really a great deal. Um, I, I think it was just when you're done listening to the show, just think, you know, if I spend an hour or two a day listening to Jack, is that worth 20 cents? And if you think, yeah, then... Really, you can think of MSB at 18.3 cents an episode as a way that, hey, I, this is the value I get for the podcast. However, I, I don't really like doing things that way because that gets very much like public broadcasting or something, right? Like, support the programming. I, I, I'm big on value for value exchange. So if you become an MSB member, you get to log into this website with a, a tremendous number of discount providers. And it's all stuff that kind of really fits the survival podcast way of life. In other words, it's things you're probably buying anyway. So what you do is you log in a couple times a year or three or four or more, depending on how often you buy stuff, and you, you check there and see, do any of these people sell the stuff I want to buy? If they do, you buy from them and you get your discount. And if you add that up at the end of the year, if you actually use the discounts, I'm going to tell you, you're, you're never going to stop being a member. Because even if you don't like me, because I say something mean about you and you're a public school teacher, for instance, and so you're angry, you know, if you're doing math and you don't think you're getting paid highly enough, you get, profitability is a good thing. So uh, you would probably stay because if you, you know, make a hundred bucks a year in discounts on a $50 membership, well, that's 50 bucks a year in your pocket you didn't have otherwise. That's how I tried to set things up. You can check it out by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. 
And those of you that have served your country at home or abroad as um, you know, uh, military service, uh, Peace Corps service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, any of you guys qualify for a discount on the MSB, uh, just email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will uh, get back to you with that discount code. And with that, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, this guy called, and he called back. So he must have called when he was listening to my rant and then called back to add more to it. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and play both his calls, and I'm going to give some follow-up that's actually going to be softer on teachers and maybe trying to clarify my position a bit and why I feel like teachers live in a bubble. And it's because they do. And it's not their fault. They're not bad people. I've said that for 10 years. Anyway, let's hear from the caller. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Matt from Missouri. And I just want to say I came across your uh, teacher's rant on uh, on YouTube, and you are spot on. I don't understand how anybody who can further their career with a little bit of training can complain about it. I was a uh, union carpenter for 15 years, and through that 15 years, every six months I had to go in for training and I had to do 160 hours of training a year and there was always some asshole who was complaining about it well I'm not going to get a check this week no but when you're out of here you're going to get a four dollars more per hour because now you can move up to the next level and now you can do this and now you can do that and the other thing is is that training is not exclusive to trades I took that training when I left trades I took that training and I was hired in at management level when I when I uh moved over to uh renewable energies because renewable energies had about a five to five or six year run here uh in Missouri and for those six years I did very well at renewable energies. And then that translates over to all kinds of other things. So, hey, uh I had to throw another little comment on here. Complaining about spending four hundred and fifty dollars or maybe five hundred dollars on classroom materials, that's total nonsense. You know I have a friend that runs a landscaping business uh his his equipment eighty six thousand dollars. My brother's a mechanic, twenty six thousand dollars of tools in his tool chest. Me as a tradesman, I'm at about eleven thousand dollars in tools. So don't dare open your mouth about four hundred and fifty to five hundred bucks. So, you know, I, I did beat up on teachers um earlier this week. I really did. And and I wanna explain why. First of all, before I address some of the things brought up here and, and, and go deeper into this, and maybe teachers can begin to understand why people feel the way they do. Um, part of being able to effectively communicate is how to, uh, or how to, to understand how the people you're talking to feel about what you're saying. Um, so the, the, the issue here is that for 10 years I have railed against the public education system, the government school system. And in every instance that I did that up until this most recent period, I would say, I am not talking about teachers. I am talking about administration. I'm talking about the state. I'm talking about the system that you're stuck in. And every time I would get no less than a dozen ass-hurt teachers coming to me with the very things I addressed in that rant. But you don't understand. I have to spend my own money on tissues. Like, again, I don't know why you're doing that. Uh, you know, we have to take additional training. We have to do stuff during the summer. We have to, you know, we, we have to, and on and on and on. And then, you know, we're underpaid. And then you look at their pay, 
and you look at the pay of people that are at comparable levels in the private sector, and you add up the total value, and you see that they are not underpaid, they're paid better than the average people in the private sector at that kind of a level, and when you add benefits in it, they're paid much better, and then when you take in the fact the hourly rate, they're paid much, much better on average. But it's easy to understand where they don't think they are. And, and there's a couple things going on here. Number one, making a good wage in America today, so let's say $60,000, which many teachers are making, and more, okay? Well, I'm not making that because you're either new or you're in one of the worst paid states. Move. We'll get to moving in a minute and where that fits in all this. But the, the reality is, you know, when, when, when we look at this, you are not paid a low wage by the hour for what you're doing. You're just not. And, but even when you're paid a wage like 50, 60 grand a year, most of Americans today are going to have some level of a struggle at that, even if they have a second house, a person in the household working and, and making that amount of money. And new teachers making, let's say, 40, uh, it might really struggle somewhat. And, but here's the thing the people that are teachers that are making 40 grand, that went the typical route through. You know, they went to high school, they went to college, they got a job like that. So they're in their, their mid-20s. That's what everybody's making. You know, unless they had like high-level degrees or something and are uniquely talented. When you start out, that's what everybody's making. And, and everybody in their early to mid to late 20s in their first entry into their career is struggling. It's not that you're not. It's that... It, it, again, it, it's really not that what you're saying is not true. It's that you act as if you're the only group of people in the world that this applies to. And it applies to the vast majority of people in the vast majority of employment at, at that level of their life. By the time you've got five, six years in or more and you start to move up the chain and maybe if you're actually trying to make more money, you do move into more specialized parts of teaching or whatever um, and you're making a little bit better money and you're still thinking, like, where's all the money? All the people in their early 30s to mid-30s that are doing comparable jobs in the private sector feel the exact same way. And they don't get the summer off. But I don't get the whole summer. They don't get 10 weeks if it's not 12 weeks a year off. They don't get that. When you say, but I have to take additional training, it's not that you don't. It's not that it's not more time out of your life. But it is that so does everybody else. I did hear from one person on YouTube that brought me a fact I didn't know. At least in Maryland, teachers are required to get a master's degree. By the time they're five years in or they can lose their state certification as a teacher. And you know what? You know that when you go to work in Maryland as a teacher, don't you? The other side of that to me is, well, I was like, well, how old are they paid? They're the eighth highest paid teachers in the country. So they're requiring more of you because they're giving you more. I would also say it's preposterous to me to require that somebody teaching fifth grade has a master's degree. And if you need a master's degree to teach fifth grade in your fifth year, how did you teach it for your first four years without it? It just doesn't make any sense. I don't think you need a ma If you need a master's degree to teach fifth grade or fourth grade or eighth grade, we're doing it wrong. And that's back to the system problem. But, okay, you have a state that requires... There are people with contractual employment all over the place that have similar requirements as part of their contract. Remember, your union negotiated your pay for you, and this probably came back the other side. And the way that happened, most likely in Maryland, <laughs> you want to bet the education lobby 
not the public education lobby, the college education lobbyist pushed for that because it, it, it pushes more money into their system. Every teacher in the state of Maryland for the first five years of their education is knocking out college credits. Hey, so there's your systemic problem yet again. Now, you, I don't care if you're teaching freaking calculus at the high school level. You should need a master's degree to be able to do it. And, and what we're seeing is requiring more education from teachers is not making you do a better job teaching. If we're going to teach teachers to teach, we should teach them how to teach, not just keep adding letters after their name. Okay, that is I get that. I get where that would be somewhat frustrating. Hey, I, I came in this to teach, especially a teacher that's like, hey, look, I don't care about a ton of money. I just want to make a good living, and I love kids that are in that fourth to sixth grade world. Somebody has to do it. I want to be that person. And then, okay, you have to get a master's degree. Again, if you don't want to do that, most states don't require that. Maryland does. Don't teach in Maryland. Well, I want to live there. Okay, then if you want to teach in Maryland, this is what you have to do. And, and well, that's not fair. See, that's where I think teachers feel like these things aren't fair. Fair is something unequally applied. This is equally applied. You guys want, the, the way that people hear you talking feel, they feel you want special treatment, special dispensation to be protected. If you say something negative about most professions that aren't paid for by government money, no one gets upset. But God help you if you say something about teachers. You're evil. You're freaking damn near Hitler. Because you dare criticize. See, you can't be in a profession and think that you are above criticism. Uh, to be fair, cops get less ass hurt when I criticize law enforcement than teachers do when I criticize public education, not even teachers directly. This is your problem. When you act as if you are so different than everybody else, and you're, it's so much harder, and you're so much more underpaid, and you use arguments like, but I have to take extra training, I have to take extra... Again, I'm back to, so does the rest of the world. Now, the real struggle I think that teachers have is they know people, like me for instance, before I got into podcasting. And... I know even in my own family, with teachers in my own family, this is the case. There's some level of envy. Some level of, it's not fair. Because they have a degree. And they've worked on advanced degrees. And they have all this extra training. And they've been doing the same job for 15 years. Here's this guy sitting over here knocking down $180,000 a year that has never been to college. And they don't understand, number one, the workload that it takes to make that kind of money in the type of way that I was making it. They have no idea. To them, it looks like it's all fun. Okay? And there's something to be learned there. You're looking over here saying, oh, this is easy. And you're saying, you look at my job and you think it's easy. I didn't say it was easy. I said it, it's not any more difficult than the average person's job that's dealing with all the same types of crap you are that's paid about the same. But they look at a person like that and they say, well, how is it possible that this person that has never darkened the door of a university can make a six-figure income, and, 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 and there's so many people, it's like that's not really that amazing. There's so many people out there like him, and there's a bunch of people with degrees doing it too, but they, their job is cool or whatever, and why do they do so much better than we do? And the answer is you are, and I said a bubble, there's more than one kinds of bubble. There's the, the non-reality bubble that I think a lot of you are in, 
But there is also the bubble of a compartmentalized system with structures and guarantees. That's what you live in. You know if you do the things they tell you to do and don't rob a post office, you're not going to get fired and you're going to advance. Okay? You know this. You have a guarantee of this. Most people in the rest of the world outside of government employment do not have those guarantees. They do not have that compartmentalized bubble around them. They don't get a guarantee. But what they get is the benefit of being in a system that has competition. You're in a system with no competitors. You have a very small private school group that actually competes for students. You guys see homeschoolers as competitors. They're really not competitors. They're just opt-outers. They're just, we don't need any of you people is what they are. So you have no real competition. So how can you go out and compete for a higher wage somewhere else? You can't. If you go to the school on the other side of the, you know, the big city, and you, you go to a school 30 miles away, they pretty much pay the same, don't they? So how do people like me, without a degree, move up in the world? We shop ourselves out to the competition. We move and we progress in our career, not just by getting better at what we do, but by saying, hey, this company does not appreciate me enough and pay me well enough that I feel that it's worth my time to stay here. Here's what I'm all about. Here's what I can do for you. If you want me, let me know and we'll sit down and talk about it and negotiate a wage. You guys have a union do that for everybody, and it affects everybody in the same class, tenure, what you're teaching, what level you're teaching. Everybody gets treated the same. A tenure teacher in high school that's not in special ed gets the same payment as a teacher across the hall and across the street. You all get, so you have one negotiator for everybody. The rest of us outside of the world of government employment, because this would include law enforcement, etc., they're in the same boat you guys are. The rest of us, we negotiate for ourselves. And that's how the top 20% of us, which when you say 20% of the workforce is millions of people. And it's that envy of looking across the street at this person who is doing so much better than you economically, and you don't really see that much difference between you and them as a person. Well, you're not a bad person. You're right. There's not that much difference between you and them as a person. It's the system you've chosen to enter is a closed, contained, compartmentalized, structured system. And you might say, well, that's true. You go take a job for a company, Jack. You are in their system. Yeah, but I can go to another company or another company or another company. And by the way, all those companies that I might work for know that I have the option to go elsewhere. If you go into a public sector, in any profession, teaching or not, you are going to be subject to being treated as a group. And that's what I was talking about. With you, The best teachers are never going to be paid with their worth in that system. It can't be done mathematically, because we would then have to pay the middle 60% and the bottom 20% as well as the top 20%. Now here's what I heard from teachers. I found this very interesting. When I put one of that out in that, in, in that rant, I get multiple versions of this general objection. Merit pay can't work 
because people that have favorites, they'll just give it to their favorites. And you can't judge a teacher just on how well her students do on a standardized test. Okay, let's, let's look at a couple of those. Uh, number one, the favorites. You know, generally speaking, if you... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that one aside for a second. Let's talk about the standardized test scores. Well, these are the same test scores that you've sold us on. So you don't want to be judged on the test score that you're judging my children on? You see how like, that, that doesn't... But here's my bigger thing. If you're going to tell me that the, this, this massive, multi-billion dollars in any sizable city, multiple, bi multiple billions of dollars just in this one city, trillions of dollars across the country, with budgets like that, if you guys can't figure out how to reward the best teachers at a higher level than the poorest teachers... Why would we? Why, why should we trust you to teach our children? You can't. You can't make that work. But I'm supposed to believe that you can prepare my child to go into a world where, unless they follow in your footsteps and teach, that's exactly how they're going to compete. That's precisely how they're going to compete. And then here's another example of living in a bubble. One of the people on YouTube said the purpose of public education in America was supposed to be to teach every child to read to write, and to do math at a basic level. But people don't want the basic level anymore. They want, you know, high-level education, but nobody wants to pay for it. There is not a statement that I've heard from a teacher more disconnected from effing reality than that one in my life, and I've heard a lot of them. You're going to tell people in states like New Jersey where they're paying $20,000 or more of property tax on a three- to four-bedroom house on a half-acre of land that they're not willing to pay sufficiently for an education, when 90% of that money is going to the educational system. You're really going to make that claim. A person like me paying over four grand, most of it going to the school system, is not willing to pay for quality? See, this is what I'm saying. You guys live in a bubble, but it's not your fault. It's not that you're bad people. It's not that you're not worth what you're paid. It's not that you don't have struggles. It's not that it's not hard. It's that somehow, because mostly because of politicians, as a group, on average, you guys have been convinced that your life is so much harder than everybody else's. It's not. That your challenges are unique to you and only you. They're not. That you're underpaid and everybody else isn't. That's not true. That you're paid less than your contemporaries with similar skill sets. That's not true. Because here's what I say to so many people that say that. Then go get a job outside of teaching. Go see if someone will pay you more money when you factor in benefits, etc. Then you get paid right now to be a teacher. And people, well, I didn't choose it for money. Well, then stop bitching about money. Right? And I get to go, well, parents just think their kids never do anything wrong. That's not what... This is about, this is about how much you get paid for what you do and for how often you work. And that's it. Because that's what you're making the case on. Basically what that objection is, well, kids suck. Well, why do you teach? I love children. See where we have a problem. You guys have a communication issue and you have a lack of understanding. And this is, this is the biggest reason why. For 90%, I would guess, I can't prove this one with a fact, like I proved a lot of the other stuff that I got challenged on, and here's the source, 90% of teachers go to school, they get through high school, they go to college. 
They get a degree in teaching, and they go right back to school. They never really work outside of the bubble that is the education world. And that bubble is a non-reality bubble. So it's not that you're lying about everybody else. It's not that you have been lied to. You just literally don't know what the rest of the world is like. And I know more than one teacher that did break out of the public sector and did go to get a private job and did get more money for it and ran back because they realized how good they had it once they did. And I'll bitch about it, but if I bring up to them, hey, remember when you had that full-time corporate job? What was that like? Well, oh, it just drops. You don't live in the real world because you literally don't live in the real world. You live in the education sector, and it's spherically cut off from the real world. That's not all teachers at all levels, but when it comes to people that teach you know, kindergarten through 12 and have never had a professional job at any level and working part-time when you're in college delivering pizza is not what I'm talking about, you don't know what the rest of the world's like. You just don't. It's not your fault. How would you know? You've not been there. And those you say, well, you don't know what it's like to be us. Hey, we all went through school. The little bastard kids you're talking about, we were them. That was me. That was me. I'm sorry. That's the way it is. Anyway, I, again, this is not really anti-teacher. It's shutting down your objections as, and, and your complaints as though they're unique to you. I'm not saying they're not true. I'm saying they're true of all the people that you don't seem to think are in the exact same boat that you are. And I really challenge you. Shop your resume around. That's, I think it's a good project for teachers. Now, I'm not saying to leave your job. I'm saying put together the best resume you can. Shop it around and see what you would get paid. See what offers come in. See how many people want to talk to you before you tell me how underpaid you are. Because the value of a person's skill set is what the market says. You're in a, a closed, protected market that comes with good and bad. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Richard in Hockley. I was just listening to the permaculture episode, and I had a tangential thought. I was wondering um, what your thoughts were on your application, your personal application uh, of permaculture in your life, maybe even before you really studied it, if you've already been applying it and how well it worked in your sales life. It's kind of, you have me thinking about the systems and processes and how you can apply them to all different things depending on how uh, the situation puts itself up. So you you were in sales and you did you you seem to have done really well at least based on what you've been saying. And uh, I'm just curious if maybe your your in, your fundamental understanding of, of permaculture could and did apply even back then to to help your success in sales. Just as curious and you thought on that a little bit of a personal selfish note in there. To, to, uh, to why I'm asking, of course, but uh, any, any thoughts on that be appreciated. Appreciate all you do. Take care. Okay, so if I look back to when I was in sales, um, I would never have been able to articulate the, the permaculture process and then adapt it to the sales process the way I could today. There was no point in time where I was in sales and I also was well-versed in permaculture. Those are two different parts of my life with 
you know, like a marketing, like if it was a, a Venn diagram, the marketing's in the middle where the two spheres intersect, right? And there's a, a short overlap that includes permaculture. Um, so there was no way that I methodically did it. Looking back at it, it's, it's in many ways very much what I did. And I guess to explain, I have to say, well, how did Jack Spearco get into sales? So this actually fits really well with the concepts that I talked about uh, in the last segment about moving up by moving over and being flexible. Uh, I, when I came to Texas out of the military, I had been a mechanic in the military. I had been very much a systems thinker with no idea that was the word before that because I grew up as a poor kid that wanted more, so I always figured out how to, how to solve problems for myself. You know, so if I, if I wanted a new gun to go hunting with, then I had to figure out how to make enough money to get that gun. That's an entrepreneurial thing, but it's also a problem-solving thing because we all have a limit to how many resources are available to us, how much time we have, who we know, what we can do. So then you have to take those resources and say, how do I make those resources get me from point A to point B? So I had already had that kind of in me, and I think there's, there is an inherent personality trait that makes a person that way. I think anybody can learn it, but just like anybody can learn to play a guitar, some people pick up a guitar, you show them four chords, and next thing you know, they're riffing, man, right? Because they have a natural bent toward that. Well, I had a natural bent toward this. I went through the military, and... I had always considered myself a decent, you know, shade tree mechanic. I liked working on cars. That's why I did it in the military. And so I, when I went in the military, I was like, well, you know, I'll learn a few new things and I'll get some, 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 uh, some, you know, initials by my name or something. It'll say that I actually can do what I already can do. And what I realized is I was really good at, hey, this car is a bad starter motor. Yank it out and put a new one in. That's not really hard. It's a few bolts and some wires and disconnect the battery so you don't electrocute yourself or arc weld the wrench to the frame of the car, right? So when I got in the military, I actually learned that there was a process. And if this vehicle doesn't do this thing that it's supposed to do, start here and work through this process. And that kind of wired me that way. I had a predisposition for it. It made it, the you know, military is going to ingrain your training in you. It becomes a part of you. So it was the musician that went to guitar boot camp, right? And, and you then became better, and then you got to the point where you were doing it without thinking. And that's, that's what military training is. I got out of the Army, and I was like, you know, I do have a mechanic skill set. I went, when I got to Texas, my car broke down. I walked down the road to a Firestone. I talked to a guy there, and I explained that my car was broken, and I needed to get it fixed. And I wanted to know what it was going to cost because I only had so much money. And we started talking, and he asked me what I did in the military. And I told him that, well, I was a mechanic. And we started talking about it. He goes, well, if you're a mechanic, why can't you do something as simple as a timing belt on this, on this, this Mustang too? And I'm like, because I don't have the tools I need to be able to do this job. Plus, it, it needs the timing set, and that requires computer, even though this is an old car, I don't have access to. So... He's like, well, could you do it if you had the tools? I'm like, yeah, it'd be actually a fairly easy job. So he ended up offering me a job. I took a job as a mechanic and tire guy at uh, Discount Tire. It was a discount. It was someplace like that um, for a couple months. And I wasn't making good money. I was making like eight bucks an hour. But I was working like 12-hour days, five to six days a week. And I, most of what I was doing busting tires. But it was like, you can go to ASC and all that. And I, and I realized, I had, remember I had taken this break. 
So I'd realized that, you know, when you got out of the Army, you actually hated working on vehicles. Like, it was something you could do, but you really didn't like it. So I'm like, well, I don't want to do this. So I ended up taking a job in a warehouse packing boxes for $6 an hour. But it was 40 hours and stuff like that. And But it was like, well, that's a step down. Well, no, I don't want to do this thing. And this thing was eating so much of my time, I had no time to go out and meet people, network, try to find an opportunity. With this job, I have regular hours, and I'm off early on Fridays. It was one of these things where you work more hours during the week and you get a half-day Friday. So that gave me a half-day to go job hunting. Eventually, I got an opportunity in telecommunications uh, doing contract install work. And then that re-upped that whole systems-level thing, because the whole thing's a system. And eventually that led me to the point where I wanted to move up and make more money. I was in that same place I was just talking about. You know, you're making 30 grand, 35 grand back then was decent money, but it was, you know, it was the same struggles that people are making 50 to 60 have today with it. And the only way I could see to get ahead without going to get a degree in computer programming or something like that was everybody said you should be in sales. You're a natural salesperson. So I started trying to get a job in sales. Instead of getting a job in sales, I got a job basically running outside plant installations and, 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 and things like that and ended up being a partner in that company uh, and had a pretty good run with it until the owner ran away with money. And so then that sent me back and I found my first real sales job. And I came into a job making $24,000 a year as a base salary. I had a quota that if I hit the quota, I would make about 65000 but if I didn't make that money in my first year, I would be fired. So there you go. That, that See how that dovetails back into how teachers don't understand how people get ahead? Well, not only did I do that, I made over 100000 that first year. I more than doubled my quota. But the company started taking some accounts away and moving that toward... House accounts, where they'd say, well, we're just going to take this as a house account now. You're supposed to be a hunter, not a farmer. And this is where it comes into permaculture. I heard that and said, okay, you don't value what I do. And that I remember it was that day that I decided that I would stay in sales and I was going to be a farmer that hunted. And, and, and what I mean by that is farmers have a field they take care of. And old school farmers, you know, with 40 acres or whatever, they pick the shotgun up, they shoot a couple rabbits, they take a deer, they have a tree line that they keep, and they hunt around their field, but they cultivate that field, and that's that's what they do. So my next position in sales was a position where I could be a farmer, where I could build a book of business and nobody would take it away from me. And that I could keep making the field bigger by hunting. So I was a farmer that hunted instead of a hunter that tried to farm. And, and that was the view. And most people in sales, the hunter-farmer thing is really not the best analogy. It's a, People like me are farmers, and everybody else, they are miners. They extract everything they can. They get a customer, that, how I want to sell this person as much as I can, as fast as I can, because I have to make my number. The farmer says, I want this person that has a contact at this organization to become a lifelong partner. I want them to trust me. I will walk away from business when I think it's in their best interest that I not sell to them. I will not push what I have on them. I will give them what I have when it's the best deal for them. When I cannot help them, I will find them help. And that's very permaculture. Because setting limits to population and consumption. See, I was setting my own limit. I'm only going to take from this customer so much business. 
That's not, do you hate money? Because if there's business there, I'm going to get it. But I know that I have this one contact inside a company, and this company is a multi-million dollar company. I know there's other people that I need to talk to in that company. I want this person to trust me so much, they start introducing me around. I want them to trust me so much, if they leave, I already have other people there, so I don't lose the, the contract because I lost them. And wherever they go, they're going to take me with them. I want them when they're, when they're hanging out with one of their friends, because they're going to have friends that are in the same line of work that they are, that say, hey, you really should talk to this guy, Jack. Well, what is he? He's a sales guy. I don't like sales guy. Oh, you'll like Jack. And it's very much a permaculture mindset, but I didn't apply it that way. That, since you asked that question, I actually feel like I could write a book called The Permaculture Guide to Sales. And I think I could set, I think I could have done better back then if I didn't know not necessarily more about the technology I was selling and, and what have you. If I had this process to go with that natural process, it would have been better. And it's the same reason that someone goes out and makes a, a beautiful backyard and you walk in and go, wow, you must do a lot of stuff with permaculture. And they go, perma what? Because it's just a natural thing to do. And that's the thing. Sales, business, commerce, education, all of it is the most innately human thing to do. One person that knows something, teaching another person about it or how to do it, is one of the most innate human characteristics. That's why I think we've made education way too complicated. We really have. We're, we're, we're trying to, that's part of the thing, we're making people special that are just human. If you think about what, what is my job on this show, mostly I'm a teacher. I'm also an edu uh, an, I guess an informer, right? Because teaching and informing are two different things. And I'm, I, I hope at some level I'm an entertainer. I hope I make you laugh once in a while or make you feel something. That's entertainment. But it's all permaculture because we don't want to hurt others. So that's also part of that ethic when you're dealing with a customer. I never want to, I, I, it's almost like a doctor, first do no harm. I never want that customer to feel that I've taken from them. I want them to feel that I've given to them. Sure, they know there's value in the fact that they sent me a purchase order. But the reality is, nine times out of ten in sales, the person you're dealing with that cuts the check, cuts the PO, it's not their money. It's money in their department that they're going to spend somewhere. It doesn't change whether or not they can make their mortgage payment. So what really does change is, is dealing with you and your company something that makes their life better so they feel like they got something. Because they're also probably not getting the product. I was sell a guy a uh, hundred hardened Ethernet switches. He's an engineer that specs them into a job. When they get shipped, he never even sees them. They end up in, a, in another building on the other side of the campus and some guy bolts them in there. But you know what he doesn't want? He doesn't want to hear about it. Oh, this thing doesn't work. Or if they do have a problem... They want to be able to call me and, and either some at my level or I can go, I know exactly what's wrong with that. A little bit of my, above my level. Let me get one of the tech guys in touch with them right now. Don't even worry about it, Ray. I got this. You sure this is the guy I need to be talking to? Or is, there, is it like someone that works for him? Who's the guy that's actually going to fix this? So that's a different question. Then I'll just get some, and then you don't just send an email to, to the guy in, in tech support. What I would do then is I would say, okay, so a lot of times it was that too. Well, you know, Tim or whatever. Is Tim really the dude? Sometimes yes, and sometimes, well, not really. See, Tim works for, you know, so-and-so. So so-and-so, he's the guy that's actually got this problem. Yeah, what's his number? Okay, you go back to what you do, Ray. You don't worry about this. If I need anything else, I'll get back with you. And once I got it resolved, I'll get back with you. I got this.
And then I would pick the phone up and I would call, let's say Tom, whatever the guy's name was in, in, in the department. Hey, Tom, I understand you're having a problem with one of our switches. I'm Jack. I'm, I'm the, uh, the regional sales manager for, for Garrett Comp. Yeah, okay. Can, can, can you talk about this now and actually be in front of the switch, or is there a better time for me to get back with you and fix this for you? Because I'm going to fix this for you. And usually it would be like, no, actually, this is not a great time. I'm dealing with something else. When is the best time for me to get in touch with you? Okay, I'm going to call you at precisely 3.15 today. And then I would call my tech guy, and I'd get on the phone with the tech guys and say, hey, listen, I need someone that can handle this specific issue, and I need you at 3.15 my time today. That is 1.15 your time. Well, we got to, no, 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 no. I need you at this time for this customer because they just placed a purchase order with us for half a million dollars. And now I have a half a million dollars worth of shit that's not doing what, so I am going to have you on the phone at 1.15. Are we clear? When I call you, you're going to answer. We're going to talk to this customer. Yes. Okay, fine. And I would call the customer and three-way in tech support. And once they had things going and you could tell everything was worked out, I'd say, are you guys going to need me anymore or should I get out of your way? Not, I have something to do. Should I get out of your way? You should get out of my way. Okay, great. Boom. I'm off. They're talking. They got it done. And then I would call about 30 minutes later back to the customer. Was everything resolved to your satisfaction? Yes? Great. No, but the guy said this. We're trying that. We're going to have another thing, and we're going to do this and put it through the test and see if it works and talk again tomorrow. Okay, whatever it is, I'm writing it down precisely. Now I'm calling Ray, who this all started with, and going, Ray, here's what happened. You don't have to do anything. You'll hear from them, but don't worry about it. Uh, there is one more thing they need to work out. That's going to be 1 o'clock tomorrow. I'm going to call and see how it works. And the amount of time I would spend doing something like that was actually a very small amount of time. Because I'm not actually the one that did the work. I just want to make sure that there's no miscommunication. That was my job to make sure the right person's talking to the right person at the right time, and they both understand each other. Once we got that down, I'll get out of the way. Then you close the loop. Ray, talk to him again today. Everything's fine. Everything's caught up. You don't have to worry about nothing. You don't have to do anything. I, I hope that we took care of this to your satisfaction. And they would fall all over you. They would fall all over you. I mean, like, you actually wanted something to go wrong so you could do that. And, and that is what makes you successful in sales. Unless you're in the type of thing where you're selling something like, you know, um, reverse osmosis water filters to the residential customer. Because then you've you got to get in there, you've got to make the sale and go find somebody else. You sell home security systems or something like that. You, you, sales jobs like that are cut your teeth, Get some training and basic skills and get your ass into a place where you can farm. That's all they're good for. And they burn through people and they know they're going to burn through people. And the only, the only future you have in anything like that is moving into management where you're going to manage people you're constantly burning through. So if you don't want to do that, you've got to get into a farming position. So I guess it is a lot like permaculture. Probably not the way you expected me to come at it, but you guys want to know how to do sales? In 15 minutes, I just gave you more than you would ever learn in a hundred hours of seminar training. Because no one teaches that. No one does that. Which means when you do, you're different. And when you're different, you're memorable in a good way. And when you're memorable in a good way, people talk about you. When people talk about you, you become more marketable. 
and, and again, within the public education system, because I'm just going to roll back to that for a second, this is what I was trying to say. You can't do that. You don't have that opportunity. You have to find a way. If you want to teach and you want to make $100,000 a year, you either have to kiss enough ass and play the politics games to get up into administration, or you got to go outside of the bubble. And that's true in a lot of things. That's true in a lot of things. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on asset protection. Hey, Jack. This is Mib in Texas. My question is, is do you know anything about trust or asset protection? Maybe one of the other expert council members might be able to answer this as well. Um, this is a uh, part of preparedness that uh, some of us business owners uh, may not have looked into um, unless you've been sued. <laughs> Details are that uh, I had an LLC and it was uh, in, in the process of a lawsuit, uh, which was a frivolous one, but it cost a lot of money. Uh, we sold the business. And since we sold the business, we canceled our insurance. And we also found out that after we canceled the insurance, that there's a likelihood that if any more lawsuits come up because of the type of insurance it was, that we could be sued and wouldn't be covered under insurance for the next uh, three years after the sale of the business. Anyways, I appreciate your help, Jack, and keep up the good work. So first, I, I would actually recommend, it's, it's a little bit expensive, but it's probably the best book I've read to get the formula for protecting your assets down, the concept and the way that wealthy people do it. So the book's actually by the current president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump. Now, the book was put out back when I was a consultant to Trump University, um, and so I, I did quite a bit of work with uh, a gentleman named Joseph Katz, who was the uh, VP of marketing for that organization. And so I know for a fact that those books, those one-on-one books that came out, Wealth Building 101, et cetera, uh, from that group, they were all ghostwritten. They were based on you know Donald Trump's philosophy and overall, and then go do this and go write it, and then he signs off on it. So even though he's listed as the author, it's really ghostwritten. But that book, out of all of them, was the one that did the most for me in understanding how to structure things. But even with that, the, the reality is you need an attorney to do asset protection planning, and it's best to have an attorney that specializes in it. And a good one will have good relationships with attorneys that generally do the suing. And they'll work together, or there'll be people that used to do the suing, and they'll look at you and say, if I was coming after you, how would I do it? And how many things can you put in front of me to make it so difficult to do that I don't want to do it? How, how can, I make, my, how can you, I make you, my client, worth almost nothing if someone comes after you? And how can I make it so if they come after this piece of something that you own that they can't get to anything else? And it's really about, again, it's compartmentalization. It's a piece of this and a piece of that here and distancing yourself from it. And, and the reason for this is there's really two reasons that people get sued. The first one is the one that people most often think of. Because you did something and have a conflict with somebody. Uh, they say that you were supposed to do this job and you didn't deliver on it properly. They say that this product that you made hurt them or something like that. And there, there legitimately is something to the claim. Like, they didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to look for somebody to sue today. Uh, something happened, 
and, and now they've gotten an attorney involved and they're coming after you. Okay. Now, the next thing that we end up with is the person that sued because they looked suable. There are law firms that basically seek clients by determining this, this, this is a target I could go after and get a million dollars from. Let me go find somebody that might be unhappy with them that I can turn into a client and say, hey, you know, if I get a million bucks for you, I, I get 300000 for myself. That's a good deal, right? And, I mean, this shit happens. We are in that litigious of a society. So part of asset protection is so that when those types of people are looking at you, they don't see the opportunity. They're like, shit, there's, there, there's nothing here. Or it's too hard. It's a lot like, you know, putting in two de deadbolts instead of one deadbolt on your door and having kick plates and uh, having an alarm sign and stuff like that. It's not that the guy can't break into your house. It's just the criminal that wants to break into your house goes, this house is a lot harder than the one across the street. And by the way, it doesn't look like they have anything anyway. I'd go through all this trouble and there's not much to get. And that's the basic strategy of asset protection. I don't have much, but what I do have, it's going to be really hard for you to get your hands on it. So, I mean, you, you, you got to think about the lawyer in this. And, and let me don't get me wrong, because I don't want to – I'm pissed off teachers. Now I'm pissed off lawyers, right? Um, there are times when you really need – I mean, I'm saying to get a lawyer, so it's not anti-lawyer. But there are lawyers that are basically ambulance-chasing scum. But there are lawyers that say the reason that I'm representing this person and suing is they were genuinely injured, and this person, entity, company will not make it right, so we're going to use the system to make them make it right. There's both of those. And on your end, though, you want to, you want to be the guy that they look at like they're trying to rob you. So imagine you're, 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 you're a guy that just basically you know, mugs people for a living, and you see a guy walking down the street. He's got a really nice watch on. You can see the bulge of his wallet in his pocket. He's got rings on. He's got a big gold chain around his neck. And he's got his friggin' Dre beats in his ears. And he's got his expensive Galaxy phone. And he's jamming out not paying attention. And you see another guy, about the same size physically. He's wearing blue jeans. Doesn't look like he's got anything in his, his, his uh, wallet at all. And he's kind of moving with a purpose, and he's kind of got his head looking around like, what the hell's going on around here? And you're thinking, if I go after this guy, he's going to fight. Even if I think anything, he's going to fight. He's going to hurt me. I don't think he's got shit. This other dude here ain't paying attention. I can have him scuffed it on the ground in a couple seconds, and I can at least get that watch, pull his wallet out, yank that chain off his neck, grab his phone, shove his face in the ground so he's hurt and take off, and he'll never even know who I was. Well, who, who, who are you going to mug? Professional suing lawyers, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for the guy with the Dre beats and bebopping down the street with his gold shining. So you need a good um, attorney that specializes in asset protection to set things up, And they'll tell you things that there's no way I possibly could because every place, every city, town, et cetera, is different. Remember recently I was talking about what I learned from my buddy Doc Bones in, in Florida. Like He has this huge expensive house, and I'm like, do y'all really need that much house? And he explained to me why. He said, well, back when I was a practicing doctor, you go meet with attorneys, and if you're a doctor in the state of Florida, they tell you to put as much money as you can as fast as possible into a house. 
because no one can sue you for your house for malpractice in the state of Florida. I, I, I wouldn't know that, would I? So how would I be able to give you that advice over the phone? And then it would only apply to you if you were a doctor in Florida. So you need to work with someone. So you have your tax attorney that structures your business for taxes. And you have an asset protection attorney that structures your entire life to protect your assets. You know, you might find it makes a lot of sense at times to move your money out of the business. And then the question becomes, how do I move it out of the business and not make it a direct personal asset where if they pierce the corporate veil, because that's what you're talking about here is piercing of the corporate veil. I had a, a, a company, Widgets LLC, but the person that sued didn't just sue the corporation. They came after me as the owner of the corporation and my personal assets. And that's got easier and easier to do in our, in our society is to get through that. Because just because you have a corporation doesn't mean that they can't come after you. It anybody can sue anybody for any reason. And if they can say, well, you were personally responsible through this corporation, it's gotten really easy to pierce that veil. So you have to structure things where it makes that difficult. Okay, even if you come after me, well, that's fine, but I don't have anything. And, you say, and if you just move it to another company, they'll say, since that company, you are the, the, the primary or sole owner of that company, that's also an asset. We can go after that company's assets. You can't just play the move the asset game. But you may be able to put it in some sort of a strategic trust that's specifically protected. But how would you then be able to move that money back out of that trust into that entity without major consequences? There, again, these are questions. So you got to get an attorney that specializes in this. And, you know, once your business is a significant size, you know, don't, don't hesitate to do it. Because it can cost you more than you have. That's, that's the real problem. So your business doesn't need to be that sizable before you do need to worry about things like this. But the best guy to help you is going to be the guy that would you, you, you could say, if somebody came to you and said they were suing me and came up with three different reasons you might be sued, how would you sue me? And what would be the things that you would most not want to see on my end if you were trying to sue me? What would make it difficult or impossible for me to be sued? Or what would protect a certain portion of my assets in a way where nobody can get at them? And that has to be set up based on your state's laws and sometimes your county's laws and city's laws even. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. This one on quail. Get some variety in today for sure. Good morning. This is the Red Leg A1 in Central Virginia calling about uh, some quail sickness. Uh, the question is, uh what is a determining factor of seeing coccidia in quail? And there are a couple of other diseases uh, that kind of mimic that. Uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And the background is yesterday evening, uh, late afternoon, I went into my aviary and I saw... Uh, each cage had one or two quail in it that their heads were drooping and they were lethargic. My research shows that there are two uh, sicknesses that mimic that and they require two different um, uh, uh, treatments, uh, uh, medic medication treatments. Uh, thank you for all you do. Red leg A1 out here. 
Um, the reality is I have no idea how to tell you which disease your quails have. And if, you're, if it's becoming something systemic, this might even be something to get a vet involved with. You may be able to have the animals actually tested uh, by your veterinarian, or your veterinarian may be able to get tested by the state to determine what is the cause of mortality. And in many instances, what needs to be done is that animal, if it expires, needs to immediately be sent. It can never be frozen. Or that will actually screw up the results sometimes with certain ways that poultry die. We learned this when we had uh, we had lost a few ducks or something, and we were worried about it becoming systemic. Unfortunately, it did not. The, the the good news with coccidia is people think, well, the quail gets coccidia, the coccidia, and this, the quail gets sick. Coccidia is something that most poultry actually have in their lower digestive systems. It, it's almost inevitable that if you have poultry manure, there's coccidia there. All right, and if it's not in there, the, the manure when it hits the ground, it's in there soon thereafter. And yet, most of our birds don't get sick, don't die, because this affects chickens and ducks and other animals as well. And uh, as does avian influenza, as does um, avian cholera, um, lots of different things like that. That the stuff is out there all the time, and animals come into contact with it, but they don't get it. Or they get it and they survive. Most adult healthy birds, if they end up with a coccidia infection, can actually survive it, recover, and be okay. Uh, many of them won't even get the way you're talking about. So overall health is important. However, if it's in large concentrations and the practices are wrong, it can spread through a flock really quickly and you can have a high mortality rate from it so it can be a problem. The most important thing, therefore, is to keep feces away from the birds. So that's why quail generally do pretty well not getting it when they're kept in cages because the feces fall through the bottom of the cage into your catch pans. Changing your catch pans religiously um, is, is, could be, and then if you notice any fecal matter on the bottom of the cage, getting something like a wire welder's brush and just hitting it real quick with that to knock it down, a, a light bleach solution, move the birds out of the way so you don't spray them with bleach, and just mist the bottom of that, that uh, can be quite helpful. It's not going to last long. It's not going to be there long. It's going to evaporate quickly, but it's going to kill any disease-causing bacteria uh, when you hit it with it almost immediately. And I'm saying in the neighborhood of like 10% uh, bleach to that solution. Kept in a sealed spray bottle, it should stay at that concentration. You shouldn't lose it to evaporation. Um, that that can be helpful. Water keeping things from getting wet. If your if your bedding's getting wet, that's when you're going to have issues. You said aviary, but then you said in their cages. So I'm assuming there are in like stack caging. Uh, being very careful to make sure if you have stack caging that the poop from one above is not somehow getting around past the pan below to the lower one. That's a big deal uh, as well. And you know making sure that they're not pooping in their food uh, all of those things go a long way to to dealing with this I think my, my biggest concern right now would be let's get the ones that are ill and separate them generally coccidia is not going to spread from one bird to the other uh, airborne it's, it's, it's feces but it's going to be putting out a lot more than would be typical and it's going to be multiplying in the feces um And coccidia, one of the problems that coccidia has is it can live for up to four years uh, outside of a host. That's a long time to get rid of. So we want to separate those birds. Now, 
you said you're down to a several, you know, two diseases, and they both require different treatment. I would separate your sick birds not only from their main flock but from each other, and I would treat one with one uh, treatment and one with the other treatment, assuming they're over the counter that you can get. And if one recovers and one dies, or if you have like say four of them do two on one and two on another, and if one group recovers and the other one dies, that you're you're, you're diagnosing through treatment. And and I don't know that you can afford to do much more with an animal that has as low a value as a quail. We're talking about an animal that's maybe worth five dollars. And and I hate to put a price on a life, but in the end, as a homesteader or a farmer, you got to do it. And so that's what I would advise. And I would also say, you know, reach out. You probably, if you're keeping quail, you're probably a person that has animals. You're probably dogs and cats. Reach out to your vet. Um, we found that even though our vet wasn't heavily versed uh, in avian uh, veterinary medicine, they were quite useful and quite helpful to us in a few of the problems that we went through and telling us what to do at least about it and kind of advise us. So that's what I'd recommend there. On that note, are you a vet? And I don't mean the person that called in. I mean, if you're listening to this show, are you a veterinarian? If you're a veterinarian and you listen to this show and you'd like to contribute, I would love, absolutely love to have a, a, a doctor of veterinary medicine, especially one that that's broader than just dogs and cats. And I know all of you technically are, but I mean, especially if in your practice you tend to do other things. Because I've had vets that are like, yeah, bring it in. And they're like, oh, we don't do that. Right? So if you really can speak to issues, if you can be the doc bones of veterinary medicine, I'd love to have you on the expert council. Shoot me an email with TSPC in the subject line and let me know. And I'd love to add a veterinary person to the expert council. Let's take another one. Uh, this one on road flares and breakdowns. Hi, Jack. Matt, California here. Question regarding a roadside breakdown or a breakdown on a busy highway um, follow-up. I'm looking to get some road flares, and I don't know whether I should go with, like, their traditional, like, burning kind or get some of the LEDs or some of these reflective triangles. Uh, it seems like the burning or, or glow sticks, it seems like the burning kind would be the most effective but I'm wondering, especially in dry California, would there be some sort of risk to using those, either, you know, maybe legally um, if you started a fire or – but it seems like they'd be the safest to me. I seem to remember you mentioning on a show in the past, but, again, I'm searching here on the your website, and I can't quite find it. So, again, regarding, like, a breakdown on a busy highway at night, what is the best road flare or lighting device to use? Thank you. Bye. Well, the – Road flares that basically ignite and, and burn are probably not really the most effective, but they are those the most reliable. Uh, it, it's almost – I've never seen somebody pull one of those out and not work, right? I've never seen it not function, where if we have an LED-powered uh, light that blinks or something or is a steady light, um, you can have bad batteries, your batteries can go bad. You can pull it out one day and go to use it, and your batteries are all corroded in there. I mean, there's things can go wrong with your batteries. Um, however, with you know LED technology, very inexpensive um, road flare lights uh, are, are quite reliable. And so what you may want to do is actually have both. The regular road flares don't take up a lot of spot space in the back of a trunk or something like that, and you know they'll always work. And then you're going to rely mostly on the regular ones. And then if you end up in a situation where you need to start a fire, huh? that road flare is function stacking. It does multiple things. Um, 
the ones that I have are kind of round octagon-ish and they have multiple LEDs and they're not expensive. And I have a link in the show notes to a three-pack of them. Uh, they are the ones that I have, but I don't think it really matters. There's about 100 manufacturers that are clearly buying the same product and naming it something differently out of China. Uh, they work. Mine are several years old, and they all work just fine. I check them about once a month, and I think that's a good best practice, too, is to check anything that's electronic like once a month. Open up the, Even if it turns on, open up the batteries, take a look at them. Are they starting to put out any kind of discharge? If they are, get them out of there, replace them, and have an extra set of batteries in a Ziploc bag in your vehicle with your kit for those lights. So if you do forget and you open them up and one of them are dead, one of them got bumped on and got left on or something like that, or the batteries are, have gone bad, you know they'll probably still work even if the batteries have bled out on you most of the time. It's a pretty low uh, requirement for operation of an LED light. That's part of what makes them so reliable. They don't take much to work. Uh, I would recommend probably having more than you think you need. If you think you need three, probably get six. That way if one of them is broken, you still have enough. Um, I also think that you sh this is one of those things that's more important to think about what you're going to do if than just what you have. I mean, if you're going to break down, what's the first thing you're going to do? Put your four ways on. If you're breaking down and you're moving, what should you do? Try to use the momentum of the vehicle to get off the road. And then if you've broken down and you haven't gotten off the road, but it's safe to do, get the vehicle off the road. Then get any additional stuff out that you can to note to let people know I'm up here right uh, and then if people try to help make sure they, they know what they're doing I'm going to tell you a quick story of where I almost got killed one night and I mean literally I almost died I walked away without a scratch but in two separate instances a couple seconds apart a, a couple inches this way or that way and I probably would have been dead or you know living in a wheelchair for the rest of my life or something like that I was on my way home one night, uh, heading uh, southbound on Loop 12 off of uh, 35 in, in the Dallas area. And a person had broken down in the slow lane. This is a three-lane road. And I was in the center lane, and they weren't doing a real good job of letting you know they were broke down. They didn't have the four-ways on. And they did have a guy with a flashlight on the front side of the vehicle, waving people around the vehicle with a flashlight. The vehicle had its lights on, but not its four ways. And again, he's standing in the front of the vehicle, leaning out, waving people around with a flashlight with his hand, like, go around, go around, go around. Not behind it where you could see him, in front of it where he was, you didn't really see what was going on until you got rather close. This is a place with a speed limit of 65 miles an hour. So we're cruising along 60 to 70 miles an hour. I've got a semi-truck to my to my uh, left, I cannot get over. I've got a, a, a guy flying up my ass behind me, and I've got a guy on the other side of me where I can't really go anywhere. All I can do is start to slow down. By the time I realize what's going down, I already know what's going to happen because I look, I see a guy stopped in the slow lane that almost hit this car. With his turn signal on, I'm coming over. I know he's going to do it. I don't know how I know he's going to do it, but I know he's going to do it. He pulls out right in front of the guy in front of me. That guy cuts over in front of me. I hit my brakes. I go into a spin. There's cars, trucks, semis flying all around me. When I finally stop spinning, I'm going the wrong way down the highway, and there's a car spinning in front of me like a friggin' racetrack at NASCAR. 
the race car driver trick, aim at the car, because that way it'll spin out of your way. If you try to go to either side of it, you don't know which way it's going. It worked. I ended up on the, the shoulder on the inside next to the median, pointing the wrong way on the highway. Car's coming down the road, and I'm directly across from where this idiot is with a flashlight. Put my lights down, the parking lights, turn my four-ways on. Put the window down. I'm screaming at this guy, stop waving people around. Stop doing what you're doing. What? What? Stop doing that. He just goes back to doing it. And I, I've got to start driving the wrong way down the highway so I can get clear of this stupidity because I know this is going to happen again. There's cars wrecked everywhere, by the way, at this point. There's like five cars wrecked, spread out. Here comes a semi-bobtail, uh, so he's not got his trailer on. There's a guy right next to him. That guy cuts in front of that truck. That truck swerves. I look out the window and I see the grill of this Mack truck where I could have, I could have put my, my, extended my arm a third of the way out. I could have touched it. It goes straight by my truck and slams the concrete median about two feet behind the back end of my truck. Never actually touched my truck. Busted a hole through the concrete medium. I mean, if this thing would have hit me, I would have been rubbed out, gone dead. I was this little, little uh, Nissan pickup. <sighs> okay, things have slowed down enough. I go hauling ass up the, the median, wait for a break in traffic. I get around, I come around, I get out of the truck. The guy's still waving people around the wrong way with cars and shit screwed up everywhere. I physically grab the guy, move him around to the back side of his vehicle. Point at the shoulder and say, wave people around on the shoulder. And then I got in my truck, I drove around on the shoulder, and I went home. And I did not shake, I did not quiver, I did not do, I was fine, except I was, I was infuriated. I walked up my stairs and I was thinking, God, I hope that last beer is still in my refrigerator. I'm going to need a beer to go to sleep. I opened the refrigerator, I pulled the beer out, I looked at it, hands are dead steady, I popped the top on the beer... And I sat down and I looked at the beer and I had beer foaming around my hand and my hands were shaking. This was maybe 30 minutes later that once I came off of that and that, that, that surge of adrenaline dropped, all those things caught up with me. That was an example. It didn't matter how many flares the guy had. So you got to assess the situation. The number one vehicle preparedness item you can own is a AAA card. It is so worth it. I know I've talked to drivers and say it sucks for you guys. Then don't do the work because I'm going to recommend it. It is Their discounts are terrible. They don't do jack diddly crap for you. But when you need someone to come help you, they'll get someone out there to help you. Um, some of the best money I've ever spent. I took heat years ago. I did a, a little video when our Dodge broke down. A survivalist recommending AAA. If you were a real survivalist, what am I going to do? Fabricate a part for this truck that's broke down six mi miles off of a real road? You know, and they sent somebody there that picked us up and gave us a ride home and all, and like that's worth 70 bucks a year. I'm sorry. So AAA, add that to your list. But I'll have a link to the type of uh, blinkers that I'm talking about. But man, really, if you break down, you gotta think about more than yourself. You gotta think about the people around you, because that night, more than I'd say, more than a dozen vehicles ended up damaged. The truck driver that almost hit me, he got out of his truck. And went charging at the guy that had also slammed into the other side of the wall in the car that pulled out in front of him. And he was screaming, that's effed up. And he wasn't saying effed. He was a huge dude. He had blood coming down the side of his face and down his arm. And he was going to go try to knock the hell out of this guy. It's really not his fault. It's the guy with the flashlight. Um, I don't know if he went and talked to the guy with the flashlight by then I was gone. I did not stay there very long. 
But you you got to think and assess a situation like that because it's other people's lives too. Let's uh, let's take another one. Hey Jack, this is Rob from Missouri. Got a question about gardening. I'm looking at different styles, everything from square foot gardening to mitlider gardening to back to Eden gardening. And I'm trying to figure out which is the best for the long-term solution. Details. I'm just moving on to a piece of property. I've never really gardened before in the past. I would like to be able to produce enough to eat at least one thing from my garden a day or at least five days a week. If you could give me some suggestions on which way to go and which way is going to be the best for the long run. I know that it's easy to do the mitlider if you have the system. And I know the back to Eden seems like it works really well. Obviously, you always push for the raised bed gardens, and I understand that. But which one's going to work better for the long run? Thanks, Jack. Every single person that's listened to this show for a while is going, he's going to say it depends. And, and you're sort of right. You're sort of right. Here, here's, I'm going to tell you, like the two methods that you mentioned there in particular – um, I don't have a lot of love for either one of them. Either one of them. The Mentalider method. There's 16 nutrients that are mixed together in specific ratios into basically a a raised bed garden that um, that you say, well, that has everything that the plants need. Um, it's very input intensive. It you never stop needing the inputs. It's not a soil improvement method. It's really a method of uh, it's really a method of artificial fertilization. So right there, I'm kind of out with that because it requires too much ongoing input. Square foot gardening. Uh, you said square foot gardening, and you also said uh, back to Eden. Let's go to back to Eden next. I've, I've said this recently on another thing, but back to Eden gardening is not really a thing. It's not really a thing. I know somebody tried to make it a thing, but back to Eden gardening is you put wood mulch down. You lay down some compost maybe, and then you put wood mulch down, and you plant into it. Some places that's a great thing. Some places you're better off you don't really need wood mulch. Some places you're better off with a straw mulch. Some places you're better off with an artificial mulch. I mean, it depends, right? Uh, square foot gardening. Square foot gardening is probably the best put-your-toe-in-the-water form of gardening because it forces you to manage the soil by the square foot, and it forces you to not overplant, follow the planting diagrams and things like that, that's why I love it. And the reason I love it is most people are probably going to do uh, either a 4x4 four four or 4x8 four raised bed garden. It's the easiest thing to do. I don't think it's always the right thing to do, and I'll get to that in just a second. But it's the easy thing to do. Um, and if you do square foot gardening and you put your grid down and you decide, I don't want to do square foot gardening anymore, you pull the grid out and throw it away. And you've you've lost nothing. You can even make your grid with string. You get some you know nylon string, zip some screws into your raised beds, and make your grid with string. It's easy, no? I, I I always thought that, and when I've done it, that's how I've done it. Instead of using like boards or whatever, or lattice, whatever, it's gonna rot. It's gonna go bad. Using the nylon strips, and that's ex another expense. You know, you zip some you, every foot. You zip a screw in. Take a nylon string, turn it around, hit a, hit a knot on it, pull it tight, give it a couple wraps, pull it under, boom, cut the end off, do it again. You can do it with a uh, regular nylon string. You can do it with, I wouldn't do it with tarred line because I really don't put tar in there. There's not much tar anyway. Uh, you could do it with parachute cord. Uh, but plain old white, you know, somewhat thick 
nylon string stands out. You do it with cotton, you'll have to do it every year, but it'll rot into the garden eventually anyway. So when it does go bad, you don't even have to worry about getting rid of it. Um, so that's where I would start. However, I never built a raised bed garden in Pennsylvania. I had beautiful soil. Why would I want to spend good money to bring in more soil? And this was my grandfather's place. And I had a house in Pennsylvania for three years of my own. And I put in a garden there that was about 16 by 16. And I just dug up the soil, uh, added some compost and organic fertilizer, and planted into it. It was great. So I, I really want people to think, like, if you're going to do a raised bed, make sure you know why you're doing that, you know. But you have to look at it from a standpoint of when you say long-term I'm going to tell you right now, if you're going to go into gardening as a new gardener, you're going to figure out over time what you like best, and you're going to evolve and you're going to change. Don't even worry about long term. But I am totally not with the Metlodler method. I have no interest in, 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 in sending anybody down that pathway, and a lot of things they claim that are part of that method are just standard gardening practices. You know, trellising, vining crops is one of the things they claim is a metlider method. It's not. It really isn't. It never was. I mean, I was trellising freaking tomatoes and cucumbers for my grandfather, and, and I guarantee you that he would have never known what metlider was, and I don't think it was around in 1970s and early 80s when I was doing that for him. Uh, I was using wood mulch long before anybody ever heard the term back to Eden gardening. Um, that's something that came around about middle, like maybe five years ago. And I had been preaching on this show alone, wood mulch, wood mulch, wood mulch. And, and, and it steals nitrogen. No, it doesn't. And everybody saw Back to Eden and goes, it's wonderful. I mean, aren't you the person that told me it steals nitrogen? Oh, well, I saw this thing, and it had biblical verses. So, okay. But, you know, so my thing is don't get hung up on the method. The best way to do a garden is, number one, make sure you can see it from your house. Number two, think about the solar aspect to make sure it's going to get as much sun as it, it needs, not as much as you can get. You know, a person that lives where I live, if you can put that garden on the east side of your house and it gets sun after 5 o'clock at night, you better put it there. I'd rather you have no idea what you're doing, plant some shit in the ground and put it on the east side, than do any method on the west side in, in a Texas garden in the summer. Right, so think about that solar aspect. Think about prevailing winds. How can you create wind blocks and things like that? And then the big thing with gardens is maintenance and building fertility. So the best method is make sure you can see it. This is, this is the real method, right? Okay, Make sure you can see it. Make sure it's close enough that you're going to be able to put your hands on it daily and keep up with the weeding and things like that. Make sure you have a fertility schedule. Because it's not just a fertility program. It's a schedule that you know on these, this, this day of this week, I'm going to put down extra compost or I'm going to put down Dr. Earth or whatever it is. Have a schedule so you maintain the fertility. So you don't all of a sudden, my plants are yellow, now I'm throwing fertilizer trying to make them healthy again. Right? Keep them healthy. Use mulch if it makes sense for you. And in most situations it does. We didn't use a lot of mulch in Pennsylvania. Uh, we had a lot of slugs and snails and stuff like that, and it was basically a breeding colony for them, and they didn't really need it because we didn't have long, hot days. Uh, here, without mulch, you cook your, your, your... I don't care if you water it sufficiently. It just dies. It just dies. So mulch as appropriate. Make sure you can see it. Touch it daily. Make sure it's irrigated sufficiently, not overwatered. 
and, and get the right solar aspects for your climate, that's the method to follow. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Donnie from West Virginia. Just calling to get your advice on uh, what kind of tractor you would suggest for a small homestead, three acres, um, capable of mowing, and uh, tilling a small garden. Um, I haven't heard you talk about tractors too much on the podcast. Just thought I'd throw this one at you. Uh, thanks for everything you do. So I really don't know enough to really tell you what direction that I would say that you should go in. But let's let's take a look at a couple of things. Number one, I'm going to tell you what I have here and what I do here, and I'm on a three-acre homestead. But I'm going to start out with the thing that I don't have that I think would be the most valuable, uh, especially when I saw the ducks, et cetera, is a front-end loader. Uh, if you have a front-end loader, um, you know, you can – Turn the blade down, and you can level out a spot just by backblading it. Uh, you can turn big, giant compost piles. You can move large amounts of mulch. If you have an area, like I had the ducks, and I had 100 ducks in a duck holding area. I was putting mulch in there all the time. Um, when it's time for that mulch to come out, you can scrape all that up and move it somewhere into a con. I mean, it's just a front-end loader is amazing what it'll do for you. So... Like that would be where I would, if I was going to step up from where I wanted to be, that would be the main thing I would want. You know, you said basically you want to mow and you want to till. So, you know, your, your tip, and there's, I don't know really much about brands. I really don't. Uh, so I do know that they're almost all very expensive when new. So you're looking for something that somebody used that they didn't overly abuse. Um, You know, the best thing is somebody that fell on hard luck and they didn't get used much at all, but they just need some money for it. But when I, I thought about doing this, um, anything that wasn't completely beat to ever love and shit was seven to $8,000. And those weren't great. They just weren't as bad. There was some stuff that was like three or four grand, but man, I'm like, that's, you know, I, I, I'm not a tractor repair guy. I'd need to rebuild the whole thing, and I'd have more money into it than just buying one that's in a little bit better shape. And everything's expensive on them. So something with a front-end loader and a mower deck is probably what you want. Now, tilling a garden. I, I, I'm not a tractor guy. Again, I don't know, but a, most tractors have the ability, or a lot of them just have some, like some sort of small integrated plow-type capability. So I, I guess you'd look at that. If you didn't feel you needed a front-end load, then my solution might be really good for you. I have a um, Husqvarna. Um, I don't remember the number on it. I'll look it up. If you want to email me, and I'll give you the exact number. But I have a Husqvarna lawn tractor. You can buy at Home Depot or Lowe's. Uh, about the best one they make. It's not a zero turn. It's a standard little drive. You know, sit on it and drive with a steering wheel. Uh, tractor. It, it's a great mower. I think it's got like a 65-inch deck or something like that. That said, it takes a while to mow three acres with something like that, so you might want to step up to something bigger. But it works. It works, and I don't mow that much, even without the ducks. I mean, it, everything dies by this time of year. Um, if you have to mow all the time, I would definitely step up to that bigger, with you know, like a, a detachable big mower deck. Um, but I have that. I have a trailer that I built that has wheels that go on like kind of a high-end golf cart so I don't get holes in it, and I can haul anything I need anywhere on a three-acre property with that. If I can't, if, 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 if that trailer won't haul it, I can't lift it anyway. 
So I can throw five bags, you know, 250 pounds, five bags of feed on there and take them over to a place and fill up my feed holders or whatever. Uh, and it's better than spending money on an ATV or something like that to do that type of thing. So it does all of that for me. And if I wanted to till a small garden, which you said small, right? You didn't say till an acre. You said till a small garden. I'd get a front-tined, you know, walk-behind tiller. I, I really would, unless you want to step up into that higher-end tractor. And at that point, really, I don't – it's beyond my expertise. Um, and and so I think it's really kind of looking around, seeing what's around in your area. But if you have anybody you know or somebody that knows somebody that's a mechanic that works on equipment like that, that's your best friend in this is, you know, a guy you can say, look, I'll, I'll give you a couple 12-packs, and I want to go look at three or four machines today. Come with me and, and tell me what you think of them. And most guys that are kind of skilled at that, they look out for people. They want to make friends, and, and they'll do it for nothing. But if you throw them a couple 12-packs or something, then they're happy. And so get them good beer. Don't give them natty light unless that's what they want. I know a guy does some work for me from time to time. He, you know, <laughs> he, he loves a 12-pack of beer. I mean, you, you, you get more out of him by giving him a 12-pack than giving him enough money to buy two 12-packs. Because he, he got the 12-pack, and he didn't have to go to the store. And his wife can't bitch that he spend the money on it because, hey, he gave me beer. And... uh If I gave him Sam Adams, he'd frown. But he likes Natty Light, so that's what he gets. Most people would prefer the Sam Adams. So uh, that, that's the best advice I'd give you there. If anybody, you know, in that small, you know, mid-size property range uh, has more knowledge on that, I'd love to hear something in the show note comments today. Uh, now we have one on um, security. Hi, Jack. Jake up here in Michigan. Curious on what your thoughts are for security considerations on large-scale properties. My fam I live and work on my family's 500-acre farm. There's a lot out there of good, sane, rational information on small homes of house to homestead level security of the house and backyard up to half acre to an acre, but not a lot when you start dealing with large acre considerations. What's your thoughts there for kind of not going completely red dawn in it, but also considerations of things like um, mutual assistance groups and things like that in the event of more larger-scale turmoil. Thanks for all you do. Hey, Jack. Jake in Michigan again, just calling back with some more details. Uh, our 500 acres, largely what I'm doing is running 100% grass-fed lamb and cattle as well as pasture poultry, so it's not, a, not all of the acreage is – It's easy to say, well, it's just corn. We just deal with it when it gets planted and when it gets harvested. When you're having to move animals daily on it, considerations of things like possibility of rustling or a lot of the deer hunters in the area deciding they're going to go after one of those 1,000-pound spike horns that we have running around. So just wanted to add that to my previous call. Thanks. Well, there's a, there's a limit to how much you can cover and how much you can defend Um, as an individual or a couple or even a small family, and, and 500 acres is a lot of land. There's a lot of folks that think, that's pretty big, but they don't really know how big 500 acres is. It's a significant uh, area. A lot of, a lot of uh, fairly large housing developments are well under 500 acres. A lot of towns are well under 500 acres. So there's only so much you can do. Now, one of the things I think you can look at here is... Most of the time, you don't want people on land that don't belong there just kind of walking around and looking at stuff or whatever. But you're, what you're really worried about 
is them either stealing something or hurting something or damaging something. And mostly what you have is livestock that you are moving in a rotational pattern. And that means a couple things. One, you're out there often because you got to go out there to feed them and make sure that they're okay and move them and, and what have you and get them from the next place to the next place. So that helps in of itself. Um, I would really look heavily at livestock guardian dogs. Um, and it's true, anybody's arm could shoot a dog. You shoot, you think you're in trouble, you shoot my cow, you shoot my dog. You got a real problem. But dogs are really defensive of their, uh, the livestock guardian dogs are really defensive of their pack. And they see that whole group. And you could probably train a livestock guardian dog, or, or kill a predator, or defend a, a, against a person with a chicken as much as a cow or a lamb or something like that as well. So some good livestock guardian dogs, Anatolans or something like that, would go a long way. Not just because if they see people that they don't like and or they don't know and they see them as a threat, they will go after those people. Um, they generally, like livestock guardian dogs, generally do not or are not trained and, and do, are not breeds with a predisposition to see something And just go after it to kill it. Because if they do that, they're actually not very good at their job. You got 500 acres, you got a herd of cattle, they've got calves down, you're worried about coyotes going after the calves. Um, and yes, I know the mama cows and the bulls will help protect the calves to a point, but you know, that's calving season when the calves are down and all, they can be a real problem. And uh, let's say you got a couple Anatolians out there with your cattle herd. And they see a coyote in the woods, and they go running after it, trying to kill it. Well, then other coyotes just come in and you know take out a chicken, take out a calf, take out a lamb, what have you. So, livestock guardian dogs generally stay with the herd. Now, a lot of times you really need some help training them to get them to do that right, or you really need good stock. Uh, I've talked to several different people that say that when they bring a new dog in the older dogs will basically train the new ones and keep them from running after because the coyotes will try to bait the dog out there because they'll kill the dog and eat the dog. <clears throat> and they know if they come in there to face you know, three or four livestock guardian dogs, they're going to get tore up in the open. But if they can get one of them and chase them off in the woods, they can kill it. That's how conniving the damn things are. So it would be just a good practice anyway to help with predator control. But, I mean, the mind of the thief is I don't want anybody to know I'm here. And so since the dogs are trained to stay with the herd, and even though they are very deadly animals, I mean, an Anatolian, a Great Pyrenees, etc., probably trained, will grab a coyote by the head and in a single bite crush its skull. Okay? I mean, that's, that's what we're talking about, the capability these dogs have. But they do that when that, that animal is brazen enough to come in and challenge them. What they generally do is they get out to the front of the herd and they bark. And this is what they, and this is why they are a problem in some residential areas because they will bark all night. They will bark and they will bark and they will bark as long as they think anything is out there. They will have that big challenging bark. And basically, in dog language, they're saying, "You get the hell out of here, or I'm going to kill you." You get the hell out of here, or I'm going to kill you over and over again. That's what "raw raw 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 raw" means. I speak dog, right? You get the hell out of here, or I'm going to kill you. And if there's two of them, they they change the pronoun to "we." We're going to kill you. Okay. And they don't use gender neutral. Livestock guardian dogs do not believe in gender neutral pronouns. They are they are uh, non discretionary uh, crushers of skulls. Because of that, they tend to do that with human intruders as well. 
So now you're sneaking around and you're thinking, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to get, I'm going to shoot this guy's lamb and, and, and drag it away or something. And you hear, and you look, you see these two giant white dogs that are standing out there displaying themselves. You know, what you're thinking is, if the dogs are here, maybe the people are here. And even if they're not, the people can hear the, I need to get out of here. So I think that security in general is always enhanced by our canine friends. In your instance, I would really look at investing in them as though you were investing in staff. And those are dogs that, those dogs live with your animals. They do not live with you in your home. That's their purpose. And when they're trained for it, right breed for the right climate, they are very happy that way. And that would be kind of the number one thing, making sure there's good, no trespassing signage up, and then interlaced with things like some things that get the point across, you're not lost, you're trespassing. That's one of my favorite signs. When I lived up in Arkansas, there was a guy up on the top of the hill. He had a sign. Uh, he had like 100 acres up there, and he had a sign that he had up on one of the phone poles on the road going up there. It said, keep out or else. And it was like spray painted with red spray paint, and it didn't look like the most educated person did it. I think one of the words was spelled wrong or something like that. And I knew the guy, and I knew he, the sign was just a bluff anyway. He's kind of, or else what? He's This is the kind of guy, or else he'll hug you, right? And even, you know, even knowing that when I would walk up his way, I'd see that sign and get a little bit of a pit. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's Steve, he doesn't do nothing. But that type of thing makes people think. Um, fencing is a good thing as well. Um, definitely being tied into your neighbors. And, you know, if you guys do rounds on like ATVs or UTVs or something like that, you know, there's nothing wrong with if you guys coordinate with each other and he generally comes out early and you come out late. If the if the properties are adjoining or whatever, maybe just a, a little bit of a trip around each other's properties. Hey, it's cool if you come here and I go there, and we'll just have each other's cell phone numbers and let each other know if we see anything. And if anything happens on your property, even if you didn't see anything on his, you let him know and vice versa and get as many people like that as possible. Um, when you get that kind of community dynamic going on, Kind of the, the vibe and the word spreads. Like, these guys all are out looking for people, that type of thing. I also think, like, the whole thing with the, uh, lots of hunters want to shoot a, a spike, you know, meeting a cow, a thousand-pound spike. I, I, I don't think it's actually as prevalent as sometimes people make it out to be. I think, you know, when one person does it, the story gets told a hundred times and it becomes 25 people did it. Um, so don't overthink that but people do trespass people do steal people do to people do rustle whatever but I, I think your main thing is going to be dogs and then having you know getting out there like i said you're probably doing it anyway to move your animals but at irregular intervals just get out and check the property out keep an eye out for things um setting up game cameras at least around where your animals are so if you know if there's impending threats Or if something happens, you can at least have some sense of what went on. Uh, an example of this, not really large property I own, but far away from the house. We had people, when I was in Arkansas, that were using our garbage cans. And it doesn't sound like a big deal. Somebody used your garbage cans. But we had the big willy carts. And because the road was so rough, basically there was a T uh, about a mile and a half away from my apartment, or my, my property. And... 
we would, you know, every day if we or every day that we would leave, we'd take whatever garbage we have, throw it in the back of our truck, and then we would, as we drove by, we'd open our wheelie cart with our number on it and throw it in there, and then the garbage truck would come and dump it on, you know, one day a week. Well, if somebody's throwing garbage in your trash can because they don't want to pay for one, and you have all your garbage, and now your garbage can's full, and it's three days until the garbage truck comes, and you're stuck with garbage, and you have no room in it, right? Um, you got a problem there. Because what do you do with your garbage now? And there was some construction going on in the area, and what it was is everybody out there is like that, and guys didn't want to pay for it. Whatever job they were on, they would just bring their trash to work with them and use your garbage. Or they would have trash from the job site they were throwing in your trash cans. And so I went and talked to the guy that ran the crew, and he assured me his guys were not doing it. And I said, okay. And uh, so I set up a deer camera and had the guys on camera, had their license plate on camera, went back down and talked to him again and explained that he was going to be talking to the sheriff's department uh, if it happened again, and it stopped happening. A couple months later, we caught some completely other people there. I'd taken the game camera home by then, and me and a guy from up the road were just uh, driving a couple of his four-wheelers around going fishing, and uh, we see these two guys, and we're like, what are y'all doing? And they're like, well, we live here. And we're like, no, you don't, because we know every single person that lives here that, that puts their trash can there, and you're not them, and you need to go now. So the guys are like, oh, okay, we're sorry. They're like, no, 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 no. You need to get your shit out of that can, put it in your truck, and take your shit out of here. And the fact that we were aware of what was going on kind of made the problem go away because as we talked to other people, this was a common problem in the area. And again, it seems like a minor inconvenience, but what ended up happening is those people kept doing it. They just stopped doing it where we lived. Because we made it difficult for them. And, you know, I mean, it was either that or start throwing in the trash can in your truck once a week and, and taking it to the house and then taking the whole damn thing down there. That was the other alternative, and I really didn't want to go that way. So I think being out and about is one of the best things you can do. Uh, motion detectors with mirrors radio is a, is a great idea, except the thing about that is everything sets it off. So you're probably better off with some cameras, and if you if, if I were you, I would move the cameras when you move the animals because that's the attracted area. Other ideas for large property security, I'd love to hear from uh, all y'all on that. You know, fences make good neighbors, I guess, so fencing. But most people doing what you're doing, you have fencing up anyway, uh, signs, etc. Because the only way I really know to secure property that that big is to have rotating patrols. I mean, that is, you want the military answer? You know, you have uh, two roving patrols uh, that are constantly out 24-7 covering the property. Most people can't do that. Uh, people that, that have large properties, 100 acres or more, what do you do? Uh, tell us in the show notes. Let's do some group think on this and, and hear from people that actually, because unfortunately, I haven't had that problem yet. I have not had 500 acres of property to worry about somebody getting on that I didn't want on there. Uh, hopefully someday I will. With that, guys, I enjoyed doing today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. A real wide variety of subjects and topics today. Thanks for making your calls. Remember, if you want to hear different stuff on the show, you're like, I'm tired of this stuff about that, or I wish you'd talk about this, pick up the phone. Give me a call, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, you know, maybe next Thursday you'll hear yourself on the air and an answer to your question. 
Uh, with that, let me remind you real quickly, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You'll see all the items that I've reviewed on Amazon at tspaz.com. And uh, by, uh, by shopping through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. Today I've got, I, I had a question a couple weeks ago about what supplements I take. And I decided I wanted, you know, to base my supplemental regime on a multivitamin. And I wanted a, just a simple, good quality multivitamin. Kind of the best product that I have found is uh, Men's One Daily by Amazon Elements. And I was pretty skeptical of it until I saw all the analysis, lab results, etc., and the transparency uh, that they put into their supplements. It's available in men's, women's, and women's 40+. plus. I did a write-up on it. But in the end, I'm not going to tell you that I've analyzed every line of this and you should get you know, so many IUs of that and micrograms of this and milligrams of that. I, I just want a basic, simple, high-quality, highly absorbable multivitamin that I take once a day. And when I looked at everything, the, the stuff that's like from Centrum and all, when I looked up the information on how they're made, well, you just you might as well just throw your instead of you know buying a bottle of this for twenty bucks, you buy a bottle of that for ten bucks. You might as well just throw your ten dollars away and not do anything, because the absorbability is ridiculous. And then you can spend forty dollars or fifty dollars on the same amount of these. And you, to me, at that point, what you're really doing is you're buying expensive urine. I mean, really, you're not going to be able to use as much as they put in those things, uh, so your, your body's going to expel it as urine. So there's really not a lot to that. Most of us get most of what we need from our diets. The purpose of a multivitamin is we all probably lack something every day, and then the something changes based on how our diet changes day to day. And by taking a multivitamin, we kind of backfill that. That's our insurance policy. And then the other things that we think make the most sense for us We add to that, and that's our foundation. So uh, the Amazon Elements is my particular base. Um, there's a lot of good stuff out there. I'm not saying it's the best. I'm saying to me, bang for the buck, it does what I'm looking for out of a multivitamin, and I recommend it not because you know I did 99 years of research, because I use it, and, and that's, that's how I do everything. Uh, there's products I actually would tell you I think are better, but for what I need, For the money at about 30 cents a day, this is what I choose to use. Anyway, with that, also want to go into our song of the day today. We have our continuous uh, continuation through Elton John week. And this might be Elton John's most famous song of all. It's hard to really pin down what would be Elton John's most famous song. But this one may be. It's called Daniel. Daniel, my brother, you are, right? Yeah, I mean, everybody on the planet has heard this song. Everybody knows this song. Most people like this song, and I think most people get the gist of it. The gist of the song is, you know, the younger brother's singing the song to his older brother Daniel, and Daniel's leaving. He's going to Spain. And he's probably not, if you listen to the song, he's probably not coming back, or at least in the heart of the younger brother, he's not coming back. And there's some lines in the song that kind of give away what the song's really all about. You know, the scars that won't heal. Uh, that's that's kind of leads you to the understanding that, th that somehow Daniel has been wounded or injured by life or something else. And I, I find it really interesting that Bert, Bernie Tompin, who wrote this song, 
doesn't feel that cutting the last verse took anything away from it. I never knew there was a verse that was cut out of it. It's never been released. It's never like they've never done a long version of the song that included the last verse. They've never even just published what the last verse was line by line, word for word. But we do know what it was about. And what that verse actually tells us from however it's been released and leaked over the years is that Daniel was in the Vietnam War. Daniel was in the Vietnam War. And there's a line in the song that says, Your eyes have died, but you see more than I. And in a song that you know is a form of art, that lyric, and this is why I think Bernie Tompkin is wrong when he says, Hey, it didn't take anything from the song. That's because you know what the song's about, Bernie. Um, if you don't know this, then you might take that to mean that you know he's seen so much pain that he doesn't really you know see beauty anymore or something he sees all the horrible things in the world and so you see more than i do you, you've lost your your innocence so you're able to see more than me including the harsh hard things now your eyes have died literally means he's blind daniel's blind he was wounded in the war and he was blinded and When we get to the last verse, we, we find out the whole story. So Daniel is this man, young man from farm country, who went to Vietnam and came back and was dismayed at how poorly he was received because it was such a huge anti-war sentiment and soldiers from the Vietnam conflict were not welcomed back in any, any good way. They were called baby killers and spit on, and here he can't, he's given his sight for his country. And he just wanted to go back to the farm, but he couldn't find happiness there. So he jets on a plane, and he goes off to Spain. As a disabled U.S. vet, you know, he'd be able to live. He'd have income. And just go somewhere where no one sees him as a wounded soldier from the baby killer war. That's what this song's really all about. I'm going to go somewhere to find peace, even though it means leaving my family behind. Because the scars won't heal. Because the scars that really hurt are not the ones that you can see. And the reason those wounds won't heal is because they can't heal here. It would be like having someone that had a wound that was beginning to scab over. And every time that scab started to form, some third party came by and yanked it off so the wound couldn't heal. That's how these guys felt when they came home. Now, when I look at all the lyrics to this song and all the words to this song without that last verse that tells me that Daniel was a Vietnam vet, it tells me he was a soldier, for God's sakes. Because there's a lot of wars this could be about. Then I, the rest of the words don't make sense to me. If you give me the context, they make perfect sense. And that's why I feel like there's two versions of this song. Most people don't know what I just told you. Most of the people I've talked about it since I learned, they're like, wow, I never knew that. So there's the version of the song that you hear before you knew all that. And there's the version of the song that you, under, that you hear after you know that. And what's interesting is it's such a dramatic change. Sure, it sounds the same. It's the same guy, the same voice, the same music, the same tempo, the same melody, the same chorus. But it's not the same song. 
by knowing more, the old version dies and the new version is born. So a lot of things in life like that. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.